0: Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod. I'm Simon Maybun, and today I'm joined by Somdeep Sen. Somdeep is Associate Professor of International Development Studies at Roskilde University. He holds a PhD from the University of Copenhagen. And his work focuses on race and racism in international relations, liberation movements, spatial politics, settler colonialism, and post-colonial studies. He's the author of the absolutely fantastic Decolonizing Palestine, Hamas Between the Anti-Colonial and the Post-Colonial, published by Cornell University Press, and the co-editor of Globalizing Collateral Language, From 9-11 to Endless War, published by the University of Georgia Press in 2021. He's written extensively for international news outlets, including The Washington Post, Al Jazeera, foreign policy, open democracy, and many others. So it's a real treat that we've got Sandeep here with us today, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Sandeep, thank you so much for joining us. Um, It's really great to have you and to be able to discuss your fantastic book. So welcome. Um, I normally start these conversations with the question of, of what got you interested in in the Middle East and these questions of of post-coloniality. So um, so how did someone from India get interested in in the Middle East and these questions?
1: Thank you. Thank you, Simon. um, Yeah, thank you for for this opportunity to speak to you about my work. Um, You know, I've been listening to your podcast and uh, I've been trying to prepare myself for this question. (laughs) and you know, I've come to realize it's uh, quite a bit of a complicated thing to answer in terms of where my inspiration comes from. Um, as you, um, you know, you know, as you know, I grew up in India, so in some ways, the first eighteen years of my life, I was in and around um, questions of human rights, uh, inequality uh populism uh, if i think back to you know uh, you know m- my childhood a lot of you know it, it's marked by these sort of very dramatic flashpoints um, of religious violence uh, that mostly targeted uh, targeting uh, uh indian muslims destruction of babri masjid the massacre of uh, muslims in gujarat that was you know, overseen by our current Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, and, of course, the liberation struggle in Kashmir. So all of those questions were, very, were things, you know, these issues and questions, very much something that I was very much interested in, uh, except, you know, growing up in a lower middle-class background in India, um, it wasn't something that I could professionally pursue. So uh, when I started my bachelor's degree in upstate New York in um, in 2003, um, I was supposed to study, um, you know, physics and economics. <laughs> Except I had a supervisor, John Collins, who was also uh, a very uh, prominent scholar of Palestine and, and, and a very critical scholar. Um, he was my first supervisor. And under his sort of guidance, um, starting an undergraduate education not too long after. Um, 9-11, in 2003, meaning it was also the year of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, it meant that, um, you know, politics became very, took t- center stage in my sort of early intellectual development. And within that, I became very much interested in questions of equality and equality tied to colonialism, settler colonialism, liberation struggle, but also then connecting it to sort of post-colonialism, post-colonial state building. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of where where many of my interests are rooted in, in, those sorts of experiences and memories.
0: So those those experiences and memories, were they things that you were able to explore whilst, whilst they were going on? Or were they things that, that sort of looking back, are are formative in shaping the type of scholar that you are?
1: Well, in a a way, both, right? Because when these things were happening, especially if I'm talking about my undergraduate education, where I would say that I really had sort of a political and somewhat intellectual awakening, right? Uh, um, You know, as an 18-year-old, I was really trying to understand what is politics, how it happens, and where it happens. <laughs> yeah. um, and sort of hap- that happening, you know, under the shadow of, you know, um, the war on terror, right? Yeah. Was really, um, it's, it's, a re- it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, you know, uh, meaningful time for me. So in some ways, I was both exploring, you know, What kind of question, you know, what kind of scholar I wanted to be and what kind of questions I was interested in as I was also trying to understand the world. And if you remember from that time, it was a really, um, you know, it was a time where there was very severe, you know, barriers in terms of what kind of vocabulary we could use to understand the world, not least the Middle East. Um, And critical scholarship was under attack. Um, Critical uh, public discourse was under attack. Um, It was also a time when, uh, you know, Jon Stewart and and The Daily Show sort of, you know, saw its sort of real rise, right? This was the Bush. It was under the Bush administration. So all of these things, uh, uh, you know, played an important role in both. You know, shaping my future trajectory as a as a as a scholar, where you know um, I'm always driven by an urge to unsettle, you know, um, taken for granted understandings of the world, but also helped ground me both morally, as uh, ethically as well as politically.
0: I think you do that incredibly well in terms of um, challenging a lot of the preconceived ideas that that people have about the world and and the sort of the more nefarious and troubling aspects of, of power. So I think I think you do that incredibly well, um, both in terms of the the Palestinian context, but also in its broader application to the Middle East and India and beyond. But I'm I'm still a little a little curious on as to you have this, this, this time, 2003, the, the war on terror, the invasion of Iraq, and the increasingly politicized environment that you're, you're talking about. Where does Palestine fit in?
1: Well, uh, a couple of ways, right? So on the one hand, John Collins is a scholar of Palestine. So a lot of these questions that I was trying to work through Um, concepts that I was trying to understand, realities that I was trying to make sense of around the world, were often translated through Palestine because of how focused John has been in his work on Palestine. But it also helped because it's an ongoing um, settler-colonial project and it's an ongoing um, uh, liberation struggle, it also you know, you know, for me, allow me to in real time, explore question of post colonial state building liberation, colonialism, and, you know, help me rethink, you know, uh, trajectories of liberation struggles, or trajectories of independence movements around the world, right. But there's also a thing where I felt as an undergraduate as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, I needed some distance from what was happening in India, which I was very much interested in, which I went in, which I was very much um, interested in making better sense of. But I felt that I needed some distance from it. And in some ways, I use Palestine or I study Palestine, but, it, but the questions I try to ask and the answers I try to formulate are often directed towards myself and India. Right. And it's only now that I have really sort of, you know, much more directly started studying India in in relation to Palestine. But if you look at my book and then sort of really, um, you know, go through the bibliography, for instance, and you'll see that almost there's an equal share of, you know, literature on Palestine, but then the rest of the literature is spread all over. A lot of it is on India, because it's context I know and understand, but also East Africa, Southern Africa, Latin America, and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, and that, that's one of the things that I love about the book and, and about your work generally, in that it focuses on on this case of Palestine, but it it also is a means to reflect on on the nature of the world and the nature of the political, which is quite an impressive feat, I think for for a book on a particular topic to be able to speak to such such broad themes and and broad sort of existential even themes about the nature of, of the world. So so I think it's it's hugely commendable. We'll get on to the book in a minute. Um, I just want to touch on your move from New York to, to Denmark and yeah. your, your PhD journey. So um, what was it that took you to, to Copenhagen?
1: Well, it wasn't a direct sort of line from um, the U.S. to Denmark Um, after my bachelor's in upstate New York in this very critical environment where, um, you know, maybe the university wasn't critical, but uh, St. Lawrence University in upstate New York, but, you know, the, the, the scholars or the professors that in some ways sheltered me through my journey they provided me a lot of space to explore these sorts of critical questions. After that, I actually moved to another university for my master's in in Boston, and that's where I, you know, really first faced some sort of academic censorship. And um, as a master student, I wanted to uh, work on a project on uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. This is. You know, Muslim Brotherhood Egypt. This is during the time of Mubarak. Mm -hmm. And I remember figuring out a way to get this trip funded. And, you know, I went and did some interviews with young members of the Muslim Brotherhood. And um, I remember coming back and then applying for a PhD project or a PhD position uh, at the same university, which is sort of a normal process in the US where you. Do your master's and then your PhD, you know, in the same program, right? And that sort of one after the other. And I remember being rejected and I was quite surprised because my grades were fairly high. Um, And later I found out it was because I was working on a project on the Muslim Brotherhood, which was a bad organization at the time. Right. And I was seen as a so-called liability. There were other issues of institutional politics that, you know, uh, that played into it. But that was sort of one of the main reasons, right? And I have to say that I, I have to add here that after um, after I did my fieldwork in Egypt, uh, on my way back, I was detained for three hours at Logan Airport um, uh, because of my trip. So... I knew at the time this was the sort of the, the, the end of the Bush era in yeah. the United States, 2007, 2000, 2008, and I sort of felt that the United States wasn't a place where I could sort of explore critical scholarship uh, or, or, you know, engage with critical scholarship on the Middle East. Um That's when I moved to Central European University, where... Um, uh, where I did a master's degree, I did another master's degree at Humboldt University before applying for my PhD um, at uh, the University of Copenhagen um, uh, at the Political Science Department, which many of you know. You know, it's Copenhagen. You know, the, the Copenhagen School of Critical Security Studies was sort of a you know uh, you know a literature that I was quite familiar with, and I sort of. And expect to to be accepted. I knew it was very competitive, mm-hmm. but um, you know, thankfully, I was, and you know, I ended up uh, I ended up there, and I've been in Denmark now for 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 ten years, more than ten years. Fantastic!
0: You've become so Danish that you also have a summer house, I believe. A quintessential right. Danish trip in the summer to the summer house. Um, right. Right. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> So, when you were at Copenhagen, um, who were you working with? Who was your your advisor there? Um, uh,
1: her name, well, she unfortunately died a year or two ago, but her name was uh, Beata Hansen, um, and she de- dealt with civil military relations, mm-hmm. um, and primarily in the Middle East. Um, of course, uh, that was sort of the initial point of the project where I was looking at civil military relations of an organization like Hamas and how they balance their non military functions with their military functions. But of course, um, uh, you know, once I once I embarked on my field work, those sorts of very traditional uh, theoretical perspectives uh, went out of the window and I was very much focused on, you know, uh, post-colonialism settler colonialism canonian perspectives
0: mm-hmm. so, so. fantastic and can I touch on the the, the fieldwork then um, as as an Indian going to Gaza and and doing fieldwork how was that in terms of the the process
1: oh it was challenging you know I only recently got a Danish passport, so now traveling, you know, I can see, um, you know, the privilege that many of hmm. many of my European and American friends had in yeah, terms of, of traveling. Course. But uh, um, you know, at the time, you know, when I started my fieldwork, the plan was to do fieldwork in both uh, Palestine as well as uh, Lebanon, and right. at the initial phase of my PhD project, I was supposed to do a comparative study, um, like a good political scientist, (laughs) a comparative study between Hamas and Hezbollah. And then when I wanted to uh, get a visa to go to Lebanon, and I was told that I could apply for a visa while in Scandinavia, I had to go to India to apply for a Lebanese visa. (laughs) And the reasoning was that they were they were concerned that I would become an undocumented migrant in, in Lebanon. So uh, seeing the visa issues, I quickly sort of pivoted to making it a one case study focusing only on Hamas and Gaza. Um, initially, I did sort of exploratory work in Egypt where many Hamas leaders were based, and there were, of course, many Gazans there. Um, and then later, I figured out the the, the the procedures, which meant, which, which if I wanted to go to Egypt through, uh, if I wanted to go to Gaza, sorry, through Egypt, um, the other option was to go to Gaza through Israel, and that required an official permission from your own embassy. And the Indian embassy wasn't too keen on doing that. So I had to go through yeah. Egypt. That meant getting a permission from the, uh, Egyptian authorities here in Copenhagen, and the permission was to use the Egyptian terminal uh, in 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 uh, in Rafa to enter Gaza, and um, that was sort of given by the uh, uh, Egyptian Foreign Ministry, of course, tied to the Egyptian military intelligence, right? Yeah. And of course, I also had to have. A permission, uh, uh, an invitation from uh, a, a Gazan organization. So after maybe two or three months of uh, back and forth with the Egyptian embassy, I eventually got this permission, which basically gives you three days to enter Gaza. You can leave Gaza anytime you want, but you have three days to enter Gaza. But as an as an uh, Indian citizen, I needed also an Egyptian visa to be able to enter Egypt, go to Gaza, and then when I come out of Gaza, I had to have a visa <laughs> to be in Egypt before flying out. Yeah. So the, so first I had to get my Egyptian multiple entry visa. Then I have this permission, which is a three-day permission. And the three days include the day they give you this permission, so you're still in Copenhagen that day. then. You have another day to travel, so the next day, and then you basically have a day to go from Cairo to Gaza, which thankfully I was able to make it in time. But you know, uh, as as it happened, the day after the border was cro- uh, was closed by the Egyptian authorities, mm-hmm. so if something like that happens, you basically lose your chance to enter Gaza.
0: There's so much to to explore in in what you've just said. From the 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 deeply disconcerting, um, there's so much to explore there. From the deeply disconcerting observations about about migrant workers in Lebanon, to the the process of of crossing into Gaza, and of course that's the, the story with which you um, you open the book. Um, the the process of of getting into into Gaza, but can we talk a little bit about the uh, the the field work that you did for the book? What was it that you were you were trying to get at in this um, in this process? What were you what were you trying to explore from the interviews and get out of it? Well, um, you
1: know, at the time when I did field work, I was told or the, the, the general agreement among scholars and, 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 and um, you know, uh, experts was that um, Hamas, since 2006, uh, has chosen to be both a governing entity, um, obviously its ability to govern was severely limited or has been limited with the siege of the Gaza Strip. Uh, but then officially it has remained committed to its role as a liberation faction. Now, historically, I was told through the literature, through the, through the articles that I read at the time, you know, many, uh, factions, liberation factions have, armed factions have done this. Eventually they transitioned from being an armed faction to a purely civilian entity. Or, um, so, Going into Gaza, the question was, how does Hamas balance these two roles and, you know, kind of trying to predict or figure out when it's going to give up one over the other? Uh, But once I uh, entered Gaza, what I realized that I, what I couldn't ignore, just, you know, as you were saying, this sort of, the complex, the very complexity of entering Gaza, sort of, you, when you enter Gaza, you realize that this place is very much, you know, modeled like you know the Fenonian image of the of the sector of the colonized, you know. Uh, so this, this this place of utter suffering. So I couldn't in any way ignore the broader settler colonial context as well as the liberation context, right? Mm. But then. The question was that to what extent is this, you know, paradox between being both a governing entity and a liberation faction really a paradox, right? And and I remember at some point during, you know, my PhD, someone did say, you know, you know, the world is full of paradoxes and are these really paradoxes, right? And and once I was in Gaza, I realized it's not a paradox at all and, you know, folks in Gaza and, uh, you know, Hamas officials, but also, you know, everyday Gaza, the Palestinians, were very much, you know, at ease or, you know, this wasn't as as paradoxical as as it was for the rest of the world. So when I was doing interviews, I wanted to really understand how people in Gaza, but also Hamas, made sense of these two Ways of being. This way of acting, like this is a state, and you know, having all the rituals of statecraft, but also at the back of your mind, know that you're in a settler colonial context that, by definition, requires the uh, liberation struggle to persist, and how they made sense, and what that meant for you know uh, the trajectory of the liberation struggle, and how we understand how liberation happens and what is our mindset is that when do we become liberated and do we ever really become liberated? Mm-hmm.
0: You've mentioned settler colonialism a few times and that there may well be a couple of people here who aren't all that familiar with the term. So could you just offer a quick definition? I, I joke a quick definition of settler colonialism, but uh, uh, maybe a way in for people who aren't familiar with it. And then from that, how does, how does Hamas deal with that, that tension? As you say, it's probably not a paradox, but a tension between governing and liberation. So I guess we're getting onto to the, the, the broader contributions of the book in terms of the Palestinian question anyway. Right.
1: Um, so settler colonialism, I mean, the difference between settler colonialism and colonialism is that, you know, uh, the colonizer says that you work for us, uh, but the settler colonizer says you go away. So settler colonialism is premised on this idea of the non-existence of the indigenous community, right? So it is premised on um, the the erasure uh, or the non-existence of the indigenous community as a distinct community with an identity, and national identity. Now, if we want to narrow that into Israel settler colonialism, uh, it's premised on this idea of which means that um, Israel was built for a people without a land, on a land without a people. That is, that there's this assumption that it was empty land, that there wasn't any sort of national people to speak of who had a distinct identity. This is also sort of the basic idea between settler colonialism uh, with settler colonialism in North America, the way we saw where the indigenous community didn't exist as a community, and in the settlers' mindset, it was just empty land mm-hmm. with a few random people, and we could sort of apply that to Australia as well. So, with this basic idea of Israel, its premise of this idea that Israel works with this idea, of Israeli policy. Works with the idea that Palestinians don't Palestinians don't exist as a people. Hamas sort of tries to um, conceptualize or rationalize its, activi- its activities as a way of uh, announcing that Palestinians are here and then they exist, right? Mm-hmm. So, of course. Um, you know, it was easy to connect Hamas's armed operations within sort of settler colonial context, and you can sort of draw in, uh, you know, Benonian perspectives, and, and 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 you know, where each, uh-huh. you know, act of resistance, each armed operation, each military operation, was Hamas officials you know, uh, uh, described it to us to be as, you know, um, a way of reminding Israel, reminding the settlers that Palestinians still exist. Right. So, you know, Hamas is very much shaped by this idea that Israel and Israeli policies work work based on the assumptions that Palestinians don't exist as a distinct national people. Right. Which is why, mm-hmm. you know, if you go to Israeli museums uh, that celebrate what they call the war of independence, but you know, Palestinians remember as the Nakba, you know, either Palestinians are not mentioned at all, or they're simply referred to as say marauding Arab gangs. So it is based on this, it is with this understanding and, you know, uh, in the background, that Hamas often describes both as military functions as well as its sort of governing functions, its state-like, uh, state-like um, uh, manoeuvrings, as as an attempt to remind uh, the settler, remind the occupation, remind Israel that Palestinians uh, are existing. And persisting as a distinct national people, so with violence that means uh, with with, an, with their armed struggle, it means that each each military operation is described as this this sort of this 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 this, this communication, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Mark Ayash talks about it as as sort of this communication, right? This dialogue between Hamas and Israel. So it's a, it's a reminder to Israeli authorities that we're, we still exist, even though we're marginalized, even though we're oppressed, even though we're under siege. Of course, this is important because, because it's important to understand, um, or it's important for Hamas to describe its military, opera- or the purpose of its military operations in this way. Because as we know, you know militarily, in terms of just sort of material capability, Israel is Israel is a lot more powerful than Hamas. So, with each military confrontation, there is um, a lot more material and human loss on the Palestinian side than there is on Israel. But if we tie it into this broader uh, agenda of reminding or demonstrating that Palestinians continue to uh, exist and persist uh, despite what Israeli Israel is doing, uh, and as as a as an argument. Um, that as an argument that contradicts this uh, this 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 uh, presumption or this assumption of of empty territory that Palestinians don't exist then uh resistance becomes part of a much more broader struggle right mm-hmm. of course with the uh, with the um with the uh, the the governing um governing uh, operation it's a little more complicated right because you're governing a state that doesn't exist, or, or you are, you know, carrying out rituals and, uh, and, and uh, rituals for a state that doesn't exist. Nonetheless, you know, the Palestinian Authority exists. And Hamas argues that while the Palestinian Authority, under the rule of Fatah, was, was undermining the liberation struggle, what they are doing is infusing the Palestinian Authority with the ideologies of liberation, right? Of course, mm-hmm. in the book, I'm also critical of that because they they are also um, they have been very you know authoritarian towards their you know, uh, you know towards you know their Palestinian uh, uh, towards Palestinian opposition factions and and critics. Nonetheless, Hamas describes it as a way of you know taking on the colonial state and infusing it with the ideology and the needs and the wants of the national people, right? Which liberation factions often do. And if you look at post-colonial states, uh, look at their law, look at their police code, a lot of that is a remnant of the colonial state. Nonetheless, now apparently it's being being mobilised for the national struggle.
0: And I guess that's where the the anti-colonial ideas of the book really start to come out then?
1: Yeah, in in some ways. And and it's also sort of how the, um, how not just anti-colonial, but how does sort of this post-coloniality, let's say this this ritual of statecraft that you would usually see in the era after the uh, flight of the colonizer, how that lives alongside, you know, uh, an era of liberation struggle where you, you would expect the anti-colonial to, you know, be of paramount importance. And this is where, you know, once empirically, I was able to show that for uh, Hamas doing both, being both the governing entity and sort of the liberation faction, you know, doing both makes sense. You know, I asked myself, so what? And, you know, what does it mean for the broader, you know, our broader understanding of liberation struggles? And that, that's when I started exploring other, you know, other liberation struggles. And, you know, I saw that this way of posturing, like we are in the era of, you know, era after the flight of the colonizers, uh, while still being under colonial rule, is not uncommon. And it's a, it's a, it's an, it's, and it was an important way, as a, a way for the for colonized people to, you know, keep the national communities together, keep the keep the sense of self together, keep this idea that we are a single national people, despite all the uh, all, all the challenges and, and, and all the ways in which we are oppressed under colonial rule. One of the examples that I bring up in the book is a dorm room, is a is a, is a dorm in at a, at a at a at a college in India, uh, in British India, where where you know they would they would organize the dorm rooms uh, like a state, and they would have a governing authority like a state, and, and there were these rituals that they engaged in as if you know um, you know they were they were operating. Uh, operating like, you know, post-colonial India or independent India. So it, it wasn't uncommon, uh, it, this, this, this way of balancing the post-colonial or post-coloniality alongside an anti-colonial struggle is not that uncommon.
0: That's where, sorry, some, something happened there. Um, that's where I really appreciate what it is that you're doing with the book in terms of reflecting not only on the the Palestinian case but also extrapolating to to reflect on the broader broader um, questions of of liberation self-determination um anti-colonial post-coloniality all these these complex ideas that you tease out of the books so in terms of the 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 broader debates on the nature of of the political what do you think the the main sort of takeaway for people wanting to to reflect on on these types of questions in non-MENA contexts would be?
1: Well, I think that one of the big, you know, takeaways um, could be, or it was also for me, as I was writing the book is, you know, what does it mean to be liberated and what mm. is the, trajectory of a liberation struggle. And, you know, when we talk about liberation, when, when we use these words like liberation, independence, but also decolonization, right, um, we often have a very economic understanding or economic way of looking at it where we say, you know, is this specific initiative, if, is this specific political act going to lead to liberation? if not we completely dismiss it right mm-hmm. but if we take the palestinian struggle and then place it alongside you know the you know pantheon of liberation struggles we've seen globally we'll understand that the struggle for liberation is a long convoluted confusing and contradictory process and that has but that's not an attack on the struggle for liberation that is more a reflection of uh, how treacherous colonialism really is and how it, you know, how it sort of, you know, enters, you know, all aspects of our being, material, uh, spiritual, um, material and spiritual being, which means to just as colonialism, you know, had the opportunity to um you know you know set itself you know in our spiritual and material being over 200 300 400 years liberation you know is also this long convoluted process this long you know that's why in the book i say the moment of liberation is not a moment at all you know that that moment we 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 celebrate as independence day i mean it, it is a you know it is if you look at the broader trajectory of what liberation decolonization requires from us uh, that that independence day is you know is you know highly unimportant right yeah. and it requires you know a process of you know unmaking that often is is is, is impossible because the very um the very um, task of colonialism, and colonialism in general, and settler colonialism in, in, in particular, is to, um, the task is to disconnect um, you know, ourselves and our memory from our sense of self. And because once you do that, then we don't exist as a people, and then we can be used, mobilized, and misused for the uh, material and material and political needs of the colonizers. So to reconnect to our sense of self, especially when we don't have a generational memory of what that sense of self, um, uh, that you know, that sense of self and sense of indigeneity was, is a deeply, it's, it's a very complex process, right? And yeah. um, you know, as I write in my book, you know, for history, you know, doesn't work with this this course correction. We can't simply sidestep colonial colonial our colonial paths to, you know, find our individual uh, you know, indigenous self. So this is so so so, you know, this is this complexity in terms of how we understand liberation, independence, and decolonization is what I really wanted to um, wanted readers to take away from from my book
0: and it's something that i certainly took away from it and i'm sure that many others have done as well it's a book that's been hugely well received um glowing reviews from lots of different people and i'm really delighted to 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 have spoken with you before recording about all the different uh, events that you've been doing with regard to the book which shows how much attention it's it's starting to garner but if i may some um it's also been a site of, of contestation, um, opening up some of the um, some of the more complex, troubling aspects of scholarship of post colonial scholarship in particular, and scholarship over Israel, um, prompting some to uh, to cancel events such as the the University of Glasgow, and that was, I think, a, a deeply troubling moment. But I think what what i'd like to ask is is where does all of this and all of these complexities and the troubling nature of global scholarship where where does it sit with regard to some of these liberation movements that you're talking about maybe what role does does scholarship have to play in all of this
1: huh, um yeah, I mean, this is, this, is a, this is a tough one for me because on the one hand, I, was, um, I wasn't entirely surprised that, you know, um, by the, the kind of attack that I've, I've faced, which is, has become very common, commonplace with regard to um, critical scholars and critical scholarship of, of, of Palestine. But I think that, of course, the procedure in you know that I that I had to go through at the University of Glasgow was, of course, very disappointing. But you know this um, this kind of attack, this kind of attack is you know is being levied on me not because I'm just talking about Palestine, but it's because of the conceptual and theoretical as well as the political grounding that hmm. drives my book, right? Sure. But I already, I was already facing that, uh, you know, starting off as, as a PhD, yeah. where I started off the PhD talking about Hamas, Palestine, but then through that, I wanted, I was interested in the life cycle of liberation struggle. But I was already told at that time that these questions weren't something I can or should deal with in a mainstream political science department. So, when I brought up the, the idea that I wanted to do field work in Gaza, I was told that that's not something political scientists do, and also that's not a place a political scientist based in a Western you know, institution um, should go to. So in fact, I was told that, you know, uh, in fact, the week before I left for Gaza, I got an email from someone at the department who... Had some sort of responsibility and leadership over the PhD cohort. Um, I was told that you know if I go to Gaza, I should remember that insurance and you know the department has no responsibility if something happens to me, and that my that my work insurance wouldn't cover me. Yes. Um, which of course, eventually, I you know um, I figured out that that wasn't true. But nonetheless, this is the kind of uh, institutional pressure you face, not yeah. just that, but also sort of, you know, the kind of theoretical framework I use. So you know, the fact that I was sitting in a political science department, and talking about a Fanonian perspective and talking about race, and you know, this is back in, you know, 2011, when I, when I started my PhD project, that wasn't seen as something you are, that you should do if you wanted to remain within the mainstream and have a, have a future career. In fact, um, uh, uh, I was told when I used a Fanonian, uh you know, when I sort of used Feno in one of my papers, a senior called senior professor said that I was too emotional when I when I was writing my writing my work, and that that you know probably not the way I, I should go about it. So you know the you know the 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 boundaries or the, or the barriers that. You know, I feel like I was facing, you know, I have been facing over the last year and a half, you know, publicly presenting my work. In, um, that was already, that those were already there within the academy, right? Yeah. And there was already a very clear, uh, you know, spoken and you know, sometimes unspoken understanding of uh, agreement over what is mainstream and what is, you know, uh, the the, the margins. And and I wish at that time you know, I had read, you know, the you know articles like the House of IR or, or, or uh, Cynthia Webber's sort of, you know, uh, a brilliant article about why is there no queer IR theory, or, uh, you know, Bob Vitalis, you know, fantastic book that explores race and international relations in North in, in the United States. Uh, in fact, I actually wrote um, an email to Bob, um, you know, Last year, at some point, where I when I mentioned to him that I, I I found a copy of his book right after I had you know defended my PhD, you know, and you know PhD is a very unsettling period where you try to figure out your space your your position in acad- academia mm-hmm. while being very vulnerable and all of that. And I told him that I wish I had your book when I and I could you have used your book to say, look, here is a big scholar in the United States and these questions of race and racism aren't marginal; these are mainstream, right? And um, I say that to you know younger colleagues, postdocs, PhDs who are doing sort of critical scholarship, and I tell them that you know you're not doing you're not doing critical stuff, and don't say that because then you then you get put into the box, and you mm-hmm. know just as you know you know questions of gender, race, uh, queer theory are put in the back end of the. Uh, of the course curriculum, you're put on the back end of, of the department, right? Just say that, no, we're doing mainstream work. This is, you know, centrally important to what IR is and does.
0: I think that's hugely important and valuable advice for, for many people engaging in the types of, of questions that that you are engaging in. So thank you so much for sharing it. And Som, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a long one, but a really rich one, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thoroughly enjoyed your book, of course, and your other scholarship, but it's been really great chatting with you today. So a huge thank you for your time. Thank
1: you for having me. Great.
0: (laughs) A huge thanks to Som for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at SSEN03 that's at ssen03. So do give him a follow. Check out this fabulous book, Decolonizing Palestine. It really is worth your time if you've not already checked it out. As always, a huge thank you to you for listening. Please take care, stay safe. Until next time.